Hello and welcome everybody. Today begins the first of three lessons that will conclude AP Euro. We need to make sure that we cover, and, and believe me, this was supposed to be like two weeks we we're going to be covering at least. We're going to try to cover the main unit topic, that being the Cold War, over three periods. The first period is going to be the beginning of the Cold War, what started the Cold War, uh, what increased tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. We'll then look at the 1950s, 60s, going to the 1970s with the Cold War, as well as social uh, elements that were happening in Europe during that same time period, dealing with a uh, new generational topics. Uh, you might call them the hippies here in the United States, but there was also kind of a hippie movement in Europe, uh, this uh, new generation coming up. And then we'll conclude it with the last section on the end of the Cold War, then how the Cold War ended with the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union, as well as in Eastern Europe. Um, I think if we do it in these three uh, sections, that is going to get you best adjusted if you are for all of you who are going next year into U.S. history, um, and at least give you some background information, you know, not too much, but at least some background information about the Cold War. So when you guys get to whether it's U.S. history, AP U.S. history, or U.S. history CP, you guys at least have some knowledge of the Cold War um, moving forward. So <clears throat> what do you need for today? You need, your, of course, your PowerPoint slide that's going to be here for you. Uh, it should say uh, Cold War Containment and the Iron Curtain with videos AP 2020, plus, of course, this podcast that you're listening to. Uh, you also have on your Google Classroom, you should have uh, three different parts that you're going to be uh, responding to. Um, let me, and what do you know? I don't have that here because I just clicked out of it. Let's see. Technology is wonderful because before you know it, here it is. Okay. So for the Cold War Begins, you have, wait for it, wait for it. So you have three different documents that you're going to be asked to write into. So the first one is going to say Differing U.S. and Soviet Goals Chart, AP 2020. You have a reading that goes with that one called Differing U.S. Goals, or I'm sorry, Different, differ, Differing Cold War Goals Reading, AP 2020. Those two go together. Uh, one you can edit. The other one is just for reading. You have uh, another Google Doc that says Cold War Propaganda Videos and Political Cartoons. We have two videos and two political cartoons that you're going to be viewing and analyzing and uh, answering questions. And then you have two videos. One says 1950s Cold War Propaganda, Communism versus Capitalism. We're going to watch that one. And then the last video here is called Duck and Cover from 1951, Birth of Turtles, Civil, Civil Defense Film. Some of you guys might have seen this maybe in a, a previous class, maybe like in your eighth grade year, something like that. And then the last thing you're going to be working on is kind of a summative question. Uh, you need to answer a question and then give two detailed uh, pieces of evidence to help support your answer. Okay, so let's uh, let's get on with this. Make sure you do have the PowerPoint open. Um, we are on now the second slide. It says warm up. It says take a moment to view and analyze the following picture. Now describe the photo. What do you see and what emotions are shown? So go ahead and access that next slide. It shows two individuals that are embracing one another. You have some context clues here in the way that they're dressed, as well as not only looking at the foregrounds, what you see in front of the individuals, the uniforms that they have on, but also what you see behind the individuals, right? 
in the background. So take a moment to look at the cartoon, or I'm sorry, the political, the picture, pardon me. Uh, take a moment to look at that. And once again, you're looking at describing the photo. What do you see? And then what emotions are being displayed here? So if you need to, go ahead and pause the narration for a little bit, and then uh, we'll get back on it. Okay, so one of the things you might notice from the picture are the two individuals and the way that they're dressed. These are two soldiers. Um, you might get an idea of what nations are being represented here. The man on the left-hand side is next to a flag. That flag is the American flag, the Stars and Stripes. So that soldier is an American. That is 2nd Lieutenant William Robertson of the U.S. Army, the 69th Infantry Division. And on the other side, a little bit more difficult to, to see because maybe we're not familiar with the, uh, the uniform as well as the flag that's next to him. But that soldier comes from anybody? That's right. Thank you, Jeremiah. That is from the Soviet Union. That is Lieutenant Alexander, uh, I believe it's Sobashko of the Red Army. And they are both embracing one another in front of a sign that says East meets West. Uh, and that sign and this photograph is taken as the, at the Elbe River in 1945. This is moments or a month and a half before the, the Nazis are going to capitulate and surrender. And VE Day, which we literally celebrated just a couple of days ago, will take place. I think this is like the 75th anniversary of the capitulation of the Nazis. And so both of these men are embracing one another. And so let's take a moment to look at the, the facial expressions and what exactly are they displaying on their face that we can kind of tie into an emotion. So, you know, both men, body language is a big thing when we're looking at emotions. So both men embracing one another. Yeah, they are taking a photograph. So maybe, you know, we might say, well, they know a picture is being taken. So they might embellish a little bit or they might show more emotion for the camera. But I, I think one of the things that I see here is genuine sincerity. I don't think they're, you know, these two men probably don't understand one another. You know, it could be that William Robertson, who's actually born, who was born in Los Angeles, not too far away from us. Um, understands Russian, and it could be that the Russian soldier, Alexander, doesn't understand a lick of English. But both of them are soldiers. Both of them are fighting in what is to be considered, maybe even at that point, the worst global catastrophe as far as war that the world has ever seen. And both of these men are potentially just months away from surviving the war. And so both of these men, I think what they're, you know, looking at the emotions that they're showing, happiness, relief, uh, brotherhood, embracing warm connection, both of them are smiling. But I, I do notice that both of the men are not necessarily looking at each other in the eyes, but they're looking at each other in the mouth because and the face because they're, they're, they're trying to make some sort of recognition of what each other is attempting to say through, you know, through your face, right? You don't understand somebody who might be speaking a, another language, but you get the context from what their face is attempting to say via the emotions, right? If somebody's smiling, you know, that maybe they mean well, if they're frowning, you know, that they might be uh, sad or upset. So I think they're trying to really read into their faces to try to show that there is a sense of comradeship and brotherhood between the Soviet soldiers and the American soldiers, because we do have a common enemy at the time. And the common enemy are the Nazis. What's sad about this image is that the Nazis 
and I, this is not sad, the Nazis, as far as a common enemy, are not going to be around for that much longer. And so once the common enemy is gone, once the Nazis and Nazi Germany surrenders, what happens to this relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union? Will it continue with this brotherly sense of comradeship, of connection between soldier and soldier? Or perhaps is there going to be a great divide in the relationship? And another thing that's also sad to note here is that whatever the emotion was that was shared between soldiers, and this is not just the only picture, there are plenty of images that show American and Soviet soldiers embracing one another, uh, eating together, singing songs uh, with one another, uh, even if they don't know what they're saying, but just trying to get along with one another because they, they understand the, the, the event itself, the finality of the Second World War is right upon the, uh, the horizon. But what's sad to note is that whatever friendship that there existed between soldiers here uh, at um, at the Elbe River, uh, it's not going to be the same type of friendship that is going to be in the high command, both for the president of the United States as well as the premier of the Soviet Union. So there is a split between the soldiers themselves and their friendliness that they have with one another, and then, of course, the leadership of the country of the countries themselves. So uh, if you guys click onto the next image, it's going to say post-war U.S. and Soviet goals. Uh, what you do need to do now is to access the chart. Um, once again, on the Google Docs, this chart is going to be the differing U.S. and Soviet goals chart. You're going to be typing into the boxes that you have there. And then you also want to access the reading, differing um, Cold War goals reading AP 2020. So uh, the first set of boxes that we have here at the top of the chart itself, we have a couple of things that we're going to um, add in. All right, we will actually read through the first paragraph together, and we'll see what we can uh, we can write in, and then I'll let you guys locate the goals. There are there are going to be four major goals for the United States and four major goals for the Soviet Union. So you want to make sure that as you're reading through the two bottom paragraphs, the middle and the last paragraph, that your, I would say, highlight or underlining, maybe you highlight with one color on your screen what the Soviet goal is and one color uh, and a different color for the United States. And then if it works, you can cut and paste directly those goals onto your chart right here. So let's, let's look at the first paragraph where it says, Igniting the Cold War. After World War II, the once allied nations of the United States and the Soviet Union, or we might call it the USSR, or the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, quickly began to develop a cold relationship. With the Nazis defeated, both countries viewed the future of their nations and the world in two very different ways. It was these, or it was these following differences, plus a great amount of suspicion and lack of trust dealing with the West proposal and Stalin's promise of democratic elections in Eastern Europe that would bring about a global conflict known as the Cold War. All right. All right, moving on, let's actually go ahead and read the next paragraph here. The Second World War had affected the United States and the Soviet Union in two very different ways. The United States, the world's richest and most powerful nation, suffered only 400,000 deaths. Other than the devastation at Pearl Harbor, its factories and cities were completely intact. On the contrary, the Soviet Union had experienced at least 50 times as many fatalities. In addition, many Soviet cities were utterly destroyed. All right, we'll pause there for a moment and let's go back to your chart. 
So where it says status after World War II, the last paragraph that we just read should give you an idea on how many men both the United States and the Soviet Union lost, as well as what their cities looked like at the end of World War II. So in those two boxes next to status after World War II, you can go ahead and cut and paste or type your answers in there. Let's look above that section where it says politically and economically, right? because the reading that we, we just went through, the first two paragraphs, it doesn't give us an indication politically and economically where these nations stand in 1945. So let's add those in. So politically, the United States in 1945 is basically the same type of government that we have today. And who knows exactly what that is called? No, no, it's not a democracy. It is called a Democratic Republic. Yes, thank you very much. So a democratic republic. So underneath where it says the United States and next to where it says politically, please make sure that you type in democratic republic. All right. We do have a democracy in the sense that people vote, but remember that we have a representative government. We are more of a republic. People vote for representatives and those representatives um, represent our wants and our wishes. We have much more of a what the Romans would call a republic then we have a, a pure democracy like the Greeks. On the other side for the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union in 1945 had what they will have all the way through to mostly the 1980s. And that is what type of government politically, not economically. You guys might be answering this question and saying that it is a word that starts with C that deals with Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, but that's not what we're looking at politically. Joseph Stalin is in power, and Joseph Stalin and some of the other premiers in the Soviet Union usually run the Soviet Union through a totalitarian dictatorship. So while the United States had a democratic republic, the Soviet Union has a totalitarian state. If you want to put totalitarianism, that's fine, or totalitarian state. Economically, uh, the United States, we have what type of system? It's a system that would make Adam Smith really proud. Very good. Yeah. Capitalism. So underneath the United States and next to economically, please make sure that you all type in or copy and paste or write or whatever you're going to do, the term capitalism. And then on the flip side for the Soviet Union, what type of uh, political, uh, excuse me, economic system did the Soviet Union have in 1945? And all the way through the Cold War, they have a communist system. economic system. So once again, for the United States, it's capitalism. And then economically for the Soviet Union, it is going to be a communist system. So already off the bat, let's look at the three the three um, sections that we just kind of filled in. Politically, the United States is a democratic republic and the Soviet Union is a totalitarian dictatorship. Are those equal? Absolutely not. So politically, already the United States and the Soviet Union do not share a common idea on how they run their own governments. And so usually, you know, democracy and dictatorships, they don't go hand in hand with one another. So perhaps in the post-war world, the United States and the Soviet Union might be criticizing each other for their political ideas. Economically, capitalism, communism, do those belong together? No. If you're looking at the ideal of communism, communism is supposed to kill the rich take their property and give it to the people who have none. Probably not going to be something that, uh, or communism is probably not going to be something that capitalists want to get in touch with. Uh, So 
politically and economically. These nations are on two separate, uh, they're um, polar opposites, let's say, of, of one another. They do not get along politically and they criticize each other economically. But once again, as long as the Nazis are still alive and the war is being fought, the common enemy of Nazism kind of blinds each other's nations to kind of picking on one another, or these two nations are picking on one another. Once the Nazis are gone, and then they're going to start pointing the finger at each other, and then we have new enemies. Nazis are gone, and now it's the Soviet Union as the next enemy in this global war. And then the status after World War II. The United States lost once again how many soldiers in World War II? Yeah, about 416,000 soldiers killed. But as far as our cities outside of Pearl Harbor, uh, I mean, there was a couple of horrible catastrophes that like happened in uh, Bur- uh, not Burbank, excuse me, Bakersfield. I think um, a bombing raid, uh, a practice raid went off and actually bombed part of Bakersfield and some people were killed. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty tragic. But other than Pearl Harbor being bombed, the continental United States is not touched and Alaska is not touched. Soviet Union, however, they suffered 50 times the amount of fatalities. So you're looking at upwards of, you know, 20, some numbers have said upwards of 35 million people killed um, during the, the war. Um, 20 is usually the accepted, um, the accepted total. So, and their cities are completely devastated. So even after 1945, the United States and the Soviet Union are going to be looking at their own existence in two separate ways, right? For the Soviet Union, one of their major goals might be to rebuild and try to build up their population. For the United States, well, there's nothing really to rebuild. So they might focus their attention towards different goals, goals that might be more important for them. So uh, we're done with the first three boxes going down. Please take the next moments to read the following two paragraphs. Those are the big chunks. Uh, the, the, The third paragraph says, Taking these two contrary post-war situations into consideration, both countries approach the post-war world in diverse ways. You'll find two um, goals for the United States, two goals for the Soviet Union in that paragraph. You'll find the last two for the Soviet Union and the last two for the United States in the bottom paragraph. So please take a moment to read that and answer those questions. And if I were you, I would pause the narration now. All right, so hopefully you had an opportunity to read those bottom paragraphs, and you should have the four goals for the United States and the four goals for the Soviet Union. Uh, and you might notice some of the major goals for the Soviet Union, like I said, is rebuilding, all right, rebuilding with Eastern European um, raw materials, um, pretty much whatever the, the Nazis have in Germany that the Soviets conquer or take. Even from Eastern Europe, they're going to take all the raw materials and uh, farm equipment, building equipment, and they're going to bring it back to the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union, they need to rebuild all of their cities as well as their population. Um, You you might see a little bit more for the United States. Their focus is on capitalism, on selling products, selling goods, being able to expand our markets in Europe. There is a huge amount of the European population that are suffering from being displaced Um, You have a huge catastrophe of so many Europeans that are scattered throughout Europe. You have French people that are in Russia or in Poland. You have Poles that are in Italy. You have Italians that are in Germany. You have Germans in Russia. How do you repatriate all these people at the end of the war? Um, You have all of Europe on the highways. I mean, walking. Sometimes, you know, eventually once there's 
the railways are rebuilt. You're going to be moving people from left to right, north to south, east to west. But up until that point, people are simply walking. The war is over. You want to go back home. You have you got to walk. And you're going to walk and you're going to sleep on the side of the road. You're going to get up the next morning and continue to walk until eventually you arrive back at home. So um, one of the things I, I do want you to, to realize here for the goals, two major ones that are going to influence the post-war, Cold War world, one of them deals with Berlin, uh, with Germany. All right? The Soviet Union and the United States have two different goals for Germany. According to the United States, they want to keep Germany united. Now, they want to keep Germany united because they feel that a strong government in the middle of Europe, a strong German government, because you know, Germany does have... Um, a great, as far as work ethic, they have the potential to be one of the strongest, and they have been for many years, the strongest economic powerhouse in Europe. And so if we were to rebuild and unify Germany, that means that you know Europe can kind of get back to work, and we can move past the, the wartime years, and we don't have to have an occupying army in Germany for too long. What we also notice is that Germany could be an ally for us in the future. If we are afraid that communism is going to spread, like we think it is in the Cold War, then perhaps Germany should be on our side. We should have a strong central European state that could potentially protect from communism spreading after the Second World War. For the, the Soviet Union, however, they want to keep Germany divided. They want to make sure that Germany cannot reunify. Now, because the Soviet Union has lost 20 million people in the war at the hands of the Nazis, I think you can get an understanding that the Russians blame Germany and they never want to see Germany reunited because the Russians are afraid that one day if Germany was to reunite, that they would go back to their fascist upbringing. They would elect or have a second Adolf Hitler rise to power. And next thing you know, another war is going to happen. And much like in the First World War or in the Second World War or the Napoleonic Wars or the wars with Sweden back in the 1600s. 1700s, excuse me, eventually Russians are going to die. And so Russia wants to make sure that Germany remains divided from this point forward. So I'm, I don't blame them, seeing that they've lost 20 million people. Another major goal that separates the United States and the Soviet Union here is the idea of the Cold War itself, this ideological war. The United States is looking to spread uh, capitalism and democracy around the world, while the Soviet Union is looking to spread communism. And because both of those ideologies butt heads with one another, then eventually when the Soviet Union starts trying to spread communism, we're going to try to spread democracy sometimes in the same areas. We're going to come to blows with one another. The only difference between blows in 1944 to blows in 1945 and beyond is the atomic bomb. We have one and the Soviet Union will get one. And so anytime we are thinking about a potential war with the Soviet Union, well, this is an atomic war. And this is a war that if both sides were to launch atomic weapons, we would be murdering off both nations and slaughtering off our populations and potentially putting the world at risk by dropping too many atomic bombs at once and you know, pretty much poisoning our air and we all die. So the game of war is going to be changing in the Cold War. No longer are we targeting Russia specifically to drop bombs on them. But we might be fighting more isolated conflicts uh, in smaller areas like Latin America or Africa or parts of Asia. Two in particular, the Korean War and the Vietnam War will affect us here in the United States. Uh, but we're going to be fighting these more regional wars as a way of trying to get a, uh, a leg up, a foothold, 
um, an advantage in the Cold War. You know, if we can score Latin America on our side, or if we can stop communism from expanding in, uh, let's say, Argentina or Chile or in Angola or parts of Africa, that maybe we could potentially win, uh, put enough pressure on the Soviet Union where we could win this Cold War. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to the next. Oh, do me a favor. As you guys are going through all of those goals, once again, think about which goals are complete opposites of one another. And those are going to be your focal points for the, um, for the or focal points in part on why the tension existed and why the Cold War started. Right? Because you have differing factors. People, the, the two nations look at the future in two very different ways. Okay, let's go on to uh, some of the rising tensions and some of the events that took place from 1945 to 1960 that added tension to already kind of a, uh, I don't want to say a bitter relationship. I mean, that's not the good term. We're more like frenemies, right? We're friends and enemies. Um, or at least at the time of 1945, we're frenemies. Afterwards, we're going to become more enemies. But we'll look at what the events were that helped create tension and increase the tensions to the point where in the 1960s, we are the closest we are ever going to be, hopefully the closest we will ever be to dropping atomic bombs on one another when we get to the, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1963. So what's wrong with our relationship with our once ally, Soviet Union, and even them with us? And then we'll also look at what those events were. So let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. And it says, let the blame game begin, World War II. So already the blame game started for the Cold War, even before the Nazis capitulated, even before, um, you know, oftentimes the United States was even in um, France for, for the D-Day invasions. So if we're, if we're looking at blaming one another, the United States blamed the Soviet Union, or at least you might say the Soviet Union was guilty, if you guys remember back during the time period of appeasement, um, that because the West appeased the Nazis, that put the Soviet Union in a very difficult position. They felt that uh, the West was kind of letting the Nazis off a little too easy. And so Stalin and his leadership decided to sign the non-aggression pact with the Nazis. And so the United States was kind of pointing the finger at the Soviets saying, hey, look, the reason why this war is starting in part, you know, not throwing all pressure on them, but in part is because of the Soviets allowing the Nazis to take over Poland. And that's what the start of the Second World War is, right? The Nazis invade Poland in uh, 1939. And, you know, you might say, well, yeah, okay, in, in part, but the Soviet Union also on, you know, on their behalf is saying, well, if the West had been a little bit stricter on the Nazis, then we would not have to have signed this document. It seems like everybody's just allowing the Nazis to get away with whatever it is that they want. And that, that is true when you look at the appeasement period. For the Soviet Union, uh, the United States is to blame because after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the, the Soviets, knowing that the United States are going to be getting involved, the Soviets want the United States to get into Europe as soon as possible. Because the moment the U.S., Britain, and France, those allies, are able to create a second front, much like the First World War, and we talked about the Eastern Front and the Western Front, the moment the U.S. soldiers can get in France and create a, a Western Front, that means that the Soviet Union will uh, will not have the full frontal attack of the Nazis. The Nazis will have to split its its uh, soldiers, and that would give the Soviet Union an opportunity to regain some strength and fight back. It would alleviate the pressure that the Soviet Union are, are having and their soldiers are having. But instead of attacking France and attacking the D-Day beaches of Normandy, the United States first went to North Africa 
And they decided to defeat the Nazis in North Africa. And then eventually in 1943, jump from Africa to Italy, knock Italy out of the war. And then in 1944, uh, in June of 1944, eventually they end up on the D-Day beaches. So from 44, June of 44 to 45, they're in France. Well, the Soviets wanted them there early. They wanted them earlier in 1942. And so the Soviets are saying, hey, you did this on, on purpose. You didn't attack France because you wanted the Nazis to kind of destroy us as much as possible before you finally gave us some sort of uh, relief and some sort of aid. So both sides, I think, uh, can take blame and both sides have to accept you know, the blame that, uh, that took place. And then the last part there is where's Hitler? In 1945, in April of 1945, uh, the Nazi leader ends up uh, committing suicide. He and his wife of like less than 24 hours, I think, um, Eva Braun, decided that they were going to write, or at least Hitler was going to write his final goodbye, his letter to uh, the Nazi or the the German people. And he puts a pistol, uh, he bites down on a cyanide capsule, uh, realizes that that's way too much for him. He can't take it. uh, And then eventually puts a bullet in his brain, blows out the back of his head. And I think Ava Braun might've done the same or she might have uh, swallowed the cyanide capsule or yeah, both of them um, are, have committed suicide. Their bodies are taken out of the bunker in Berlin and they're lit on fire. And the Soviets are the first ones. The Soviets are actually the, the nation that take Berlin in 1945. The United States and the Soviet Union both agree that the Soviets should have Berlin because of the destruction and how long the Soviets have been fighting. And that did not go over well with many American soldiers who were there in Europe. You know, they wanted the glory of going in and destroying the Nazis, and they felt that that was kind of taken away from them. Whatever the case might be, the Soviets are the first ones to locate Hitler. They will tell the Americans when the Americans arrive in Berlin, they go to see the body, the body's gone. And so when the Americans ask the question, wait a second, where's, where's Hitler? The Soviets, the Soviet response was, we don't know. What do you mean? There's no Hitler's body. What are you talking about? There's, and so there's this cover-up. Um, Stalin says that at some point in the future is propaganda that uh, Hitler is actually not dead, that he's alive, that the West has him, and that we are going to use future Nazism to destroy global communism, and uh, it's just all propaganda. Um, but you also have kind of that question of where's Hitler that adds even more tension to already uh, an opening tense relationship between the frenemies of the United States and the Soviet Union. All right, let's move on to the first major event. And this is also another major event that takes place before the war is is over. It is the Yalta Conference in 1945. The three men that you see seated there will start on the right side and will end up on the left. So on the right side with the hat on, that is the premier of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin. Next to him with the dark coat on, that is the American president, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then next to him, that is the British prime minister, um, that is uh, Big Willie uh, Winston Churchill. Now, something that's important to note about these three, these big three at the Yalta conference, is the men on the outsides, they really don't like one another. Stalin um, does not like how verbal uh, Churchill is, um, how expressive that he is, especially about communism. Uh, he, you know, Churchill is definitely somebody who talks the talk and walks the walk and doesn't hold any punches. And so already Winston Churchill feels that Joseph Stalin is kind of like a, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
that whatever you see on the uh, the front is not the true nature. That perhaps Stalin here is simply making a show uh, to make himself look good and kind of bowing his head and saying, yes, yes, I will do whatever you guys talk about. And in the end, he might you know potentially break promises here. So already there's kind of a, a heated relationship between Churchill and Stalin. But the man in the middle is probably even more important here with the U.S. president. Apparently, Stalin likes the president, uh, Roosevelt. He finds in Roosevelt a man who he believes is very intelligent, um, dare I say, maybe even some sort of a a father figure. Um, But intelligence was the biggest term that I've I've always heard Stalin use, that he was a a man who was very intelligent. And even the future leader, um, Truman, that Truman simply could not hold um, a candle uh, to the intelligence and the brightness of of um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but it's, it's Roosevelt that kind of acts as the go between for both of these men. As long as Roosevelt's there, then the guys on the outside, Churchill and Stalin can kind of get along because Churchill can turn to, to Roosevelt. Roosevelt then kind of, you know, can alter, manipulate the words that Churchill says to gain acceptance from Stalin. And so they kind of work well with one another. Unfortunately, Roosevelt here is suffering, and he's been suffering for quite a while from polio. And uh, not too long after this picture is taken, Roosevelt is going to succumb to polio, and he's going to die. And eventually, President Truman, the vice president at the time, will become president. So looking at the next slide where it says Yalta goals, these are some of the goals that all three of these men uh, promised or agreed to. One, Germany is going to be divided into four parts, and those four parts will be occupied by the United States. France, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union. So each of the four major starting allied countries or major allied countries would all uh, divide Germany into four parts. Each nation would get a part. Number two, Germany will pay for the, um, pay the Soviet Union for all loss of life and the destruction on land. Now, this is not too far-fetched from what we saw in the uh, First World War with the War Guilt Clause and the $33 billion over 30 years. But Germany, according to the goals, Germany is to pay the Soviet Union for loss of life and loss of, uh, of land. Now, how they pay might be a different story. If they pay through you know, money, gold, work, supplies, that, that might be something different. And number three, free elections in Eastern Europe. All right. Now, notice in parentheses, it says Stalin promises. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought up the idea of what was going to happen in parts of Eastern Europe, like Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. If the Soviet Union eventually push the Nazis out of Eastern Europe and the Soviets occupy Eastern Europe, they they take it for themselves. What's going to happen to those independent countries like Poland? Well, Roosevelt and and Winston Churchill wanted Poland and those other um, Soviet bloc countries to have the right to determine their own type of government. If Poland wants to be democratic, let them choose, have them have have free elections. If they eventually elect a communist system on their own, because they're an independent country, that's fine. But not to have the Soviet Union interfere with those independent countries. Well, Stalin promises this. He promises it to Roosevelt. But remember, what happens to Roosevelt in a couple of months? He's dead. And so the death of Roosevelt might change that promise slightly. We'll see. All right. So uh, the next uh, slide says, how did the Yalta Conference start the issue of tension between the United States and the Soviet Union? Well, even though all three of these men agreed to the goals as far as free elections, Germany has to pay, Germany being divided, 
it's really that last one that is going to start to raise tensions. Because even though Stalin promised that he would allow free elections in Eastern Europe, already Winston Churchill and Roosevelt were kind of iffy on that promise. They felt that the Soviet Union would never allow Eastern Europe to uh, to dictate their own future because, uh, once again, of the destruction that the Soviets had to deal with at the end of the Second World War. You, you know, I, I think I've heard people kind of say that you know the Soviet Union has a black eye and they're kind of in this match. They're about ready to, to fall down and maybe be defeated. Uh, no, they're they are losing blood. They are punctured. They have been shot. They, you name it, whatever the analogy is, they're on the verge of potential death. And so if they allow nations on their own borders to choose whatever you know ideology they want to follow, capitalism, capitalism, communism, democracy, totalitarianism, they could potentially be ruining the safety of their country and their future. And so already people kind of understood there's no way that the Soviet Union could um, actually deliver on the promise. So that was one of the first and early tensions that started to develop. All right. Uh, the next slide you're going to see um, is Germany divided. Um, this gives you an idea of how Germany is going to be divided. The red section, the GDR, is the German Deutsches, uh, sorry, German Democratic Republic or the German Democratic Republic, or the GDR. Um, and that is in red. That is the Soviet sector when Germany gets divided. So that sector is belongs to uh, to Germany, but please, uh, I'm sorry, to Russia. Oof. But please notice in the middle of that red section is the capital of Germany, the capital of Berlin. Berlin itself is also divided into four administration zones. So you have a city that is divided into four parts amongst or in the middle of a, a area, a sector that belongs to the Soviet Union. That's also going to cause some tension in the, uh, the near future. All right, let's go down to the second major event that kind of adds to the, uh, the turmoil and uh, trauma and tension of the Cold War. So the second one is the Potsdam Conference. So previously we were at um, we were at the um, ooh, we were at the Yalta Conference, and here we are now at Potsdam. And usually, when at Potsdam is outside of Berlin, so the Nazis have been defeated, and so all three of these men are going to um, going to come back. However, it's Truman this time, and not uh, Roosevelt, because Roosevelt once again has has died from polio. So at Potsdam, uh, 1945, this is where Stalin breaks his promise for free elections. Everything else is still on the table, dividing up Germany into four parts, having Germany pay, have Berlin divided into four parts. But it's here where Stalin breaks his promise and says, no, there's no way I can allow Eastern Europe to have its own elections. And once again, I made mention of this earlier, but if you look at the history of the Soviet Union, the history of Russia, Every century, and sometimes even twice in a century, there have been invasions from the west to the east, and Russians die. The Poles did in the 1600s, the Swedes in the 1700s, Napoleon in 1812, World War I and World War II in the 1900s. Russians die in these conflicts with the west. And so looking at a timeline of history, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that the Soviet Union was attempting to protect their, their nation and their, their people or their existence by actually creating a buffer zone, by taking Poland and creating from Poland all the way down to areas of, of Yugoslavia, even though Yugoslavia is not, it's kind of Cold War-esque communist state, but they're, they're on their own. They're not part of the Soviet Union. Down to Albania, this whole section of Eastern Europe is going to be kind of a puppet state of the Soviet Union. 
The Soviet Union is the puppet master. And as the puppet master, the Soviet Union pulls the strings and all the little puppets dance. So anytime that the, you know, the Soviet Union wants Poland to do something, it's really the Soviet Union that controls Poland. Or they'll control Hungary or Czechoslovakia, um, in, um, Albania. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Uh, East Germany, for example. All this section of the buffer zone or this kind of protective area that separates Russia from the Western world. If you go to the next the next slide, this is going to be kind of an animation. So if you click the uh, the button, if you've seen this in the full presentation view, if you click the button, you'll see the Nazi flags are moving back home, back to Germany. And as the Nazis are being pushed out of Russia, the Soviet Union and its military is pushing in to Eastern Europe. And they're taking over places like East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, and Albania. And the problem here is that by the time 1945 comes and the war is over, the Soviet Union doesn't leave. They keep their military in those areas. And then eventually they will have communist states developed into Poland and Czechoslovakia and Romania. And these all become communist Eastern European states uh, aligned to, to Russia. Uh, Russia is their, their kind of protector. It's their, their best friend. But once again, whatever happens in this Eastern European zone, it's because the Soviet Union allows it to happen. Um, let's say, let's say for example, East Germany and West Germany were to reunify in the future. Right, let's just say that uh, the worst nightmare for the Soviet Union takes place. A second Adolf Hitler comes to power. That area that you see between East uh, between West Germany and the Soviet Union, right, where the Nazi flag started, uh, the area of East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. That area is where, according to the Russians, the Third World War has the potential to be fought. So if the Nazis come back to power and they want to take over the Soviet Union for Lebensraum and living space, um, then it's okay if the Soviet Union utterly destroys Poland or Romanians die in the Third World War or Yugoslavia is destroyed as long as the Soviet Union is protected. That area of Eastern Europe is the buffer zone. It's the zone that keeps the West away or buffered from the Soviet Union. On the flip side of this, however, right, looking at this map, uh, if you guys click to the, the next, side, uh, next slide, you're going to see a quote. It's the Iron Curtain quote from Winston Churchill. All right, when this quote was made, this was actually done, I think, uh, here in the United States in the Midwest. Um, so uh, it's called the Iron Curtain speech. Uh, the, the, premier, uh, or the Prime Minister Winston Churchill, he was already out of office when he gave the speech. But he came here to the United States. I think he was in the University of Ohio. I, don't quote me on that. Or no, min, min, yeah. Anyways, he's here in the Midwest somewhere, and he gives a speech, and it's this speech that kind of adds a little bit more tension. So let's read through this. He says, "From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lies all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe: Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia." All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. Now, that means the Soviet circle of influence, right? The, whatever is in that sphere, the Russians control. And all are subject in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, uh, but to a very high and in many cases increasing measure of control from Moscow. What he's basically saying is what I told you. The Soviets are the puppet masters and all of these nations are simply the puppets. These are not independent states. These are states that have been taken over and controlled by the Soviet Union. Now, if you're in the full um, mode looking at the PowerPoint slide, if you click the next uh, slide, you're going to see a picture 
of what the the iron curtain looks like, right? This is not an actual iron curtain. It's not like a shower curtain that's made of iron. What this is, is an imaginary line that dictates what's on the east and what's in the west. And that's different for both sides, right? To the west, what's in the east might look to be controlled. It might look to be uh, suffering from a lack of freedom. Uh, in the east, looking at the west, um, the East might look at it as protection from capitalism, protection from future Nazism, protection from a West that has always been at war with the East. So th the imagery of the Iron Curtain then is viewed in nuances, in two diverse nuances in separate ways. The West sees it as one symbol. The East sees it as another symbol. The next image that you're going to see is a political cartoon. There's Winston Churchill looking underneath this Iron Curtain. And it says, no admittance by order of Joe. Um, if you notice, the E in Europe has been cut off. So part of Europe has been separated. Um, the railway line is being cut off. Nobody can get to the East. And even the Eastern, the, the, the way that the cartoonist has made Eastern Europe to look like, they made it look really dark and you know, um, dirty and industrial. And there's the Soviet flag with the hammer and sickle on it. Um, while, while here... Uh, I think there's also mil very militaristic. You might see soldiers marching around in the East, but in the West, it seems open. There's some destruction. There's a building that's falling and collapsing. There's a couple people looking or running away from the, um, from the iron curtain. I think on the Soviet side, there's actually guys with machine guns and rifles that are actually on top of the iron curtain, but it gives you this idea from the artist perspective that the West is open and free. The East is under utter control by the Soviet union. And what the United States saw here, if you guys click on the, the slides, you're going to see Joseph Stalin extending Soviet flags over Europe. To the West, to many people in the West, to many governments, it seemed like the Soviet Union was occupying Eastern Europe, not for their own protection, but potentially to get a foothold in spreading communism around the world, uh, Europe to begin with. And so here is a political cartoon where if you notice where the question marks are, where it says countries not yet decided that the Soviet Union is kind of pushing their weight around uh, that might be trying to start communist revolutions in Sweden. If you notice, there's a question mark in France as well. And even in Italy, northern parts of Italy and parts of France, uh, after 1945, when the war was over, you had communist parties that tried to build up enough influence in those states and cause chaos. I think in France that the French government went in and actually fired upon and shot and killed many French members of the communist party and put down a potential communist revolt. Um, you know, it was like kind of a no-nonsense uh, approach. And even in Italy, uh, in Italy, a lot of the Italians realized that communism was so extreme, much like as extreme as, uh, as Nazism, that after the war, um, they didn't want to see politics being extreme. A lot of people went for more of the middle moderate route with like the, the social Christian Democrats would be, I guess, the best moderate party in Europe for many of these countries at the time. But for our, from our perspective, from a Western perspective, it seems to be that communism is looking to spread around the world. So if communism is spreading, then it's our job, the Western job, the United States job as the enemy of the Soviet Union, the enemy of communism to try to stop communism from spreading. And that's when we get into a different type of Cold War. And we'll talk about that coming up. So that the Soviet sphere, the Soviet satellite countries, the uh, countries, once again, that the Soviets uh, control by way of being a puppet master were Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Romania, Albania. Yugoslavia eventually tells the Soviet Union, I believe in the 1940s, late 40s, uh, that they do not want to be part of 
whatever type of communism that the Soviet Union wants, that Yugoslavia shall remain its, on its own. And it, it takes some time. The Soviet Union finally does back off and Yugoslavia becomes its own independent state. It is a communist state at the time, but they, are, are, they do not want to be controlled by the Soviet Union. Now, these countries were indirectly and sometimes directly controlled by the, the Soviet Union, by the Russians. And that these were supposed to be those nations that were the buffer zone for a future war, potentially, if a future war was coming Russia's way. Okay, so we're going to take a moment to do a little bit of a review. If this had been in class, we were going to do a little thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up for true and then thumbs down for false. But just think to yourself what the answers might be to these uh, statements. So for the next slide, it says, one of the goals of the Soviet Union following World War II was to spread communism. Is that a true statement or a false statement? And that is true. Yes, absolutely. It is true. Soviet Union was looking to spread communism after World War II. Next slide. One of the goals of the United States following World War II was to search for new markets to sell American goods. Is that what the United States had planned? Is that one of the goals? And that is a true. Yes, that is true. That is a true goal. The United States was looking, remember our our factories are producing. We're looking to sell products. Europeans, uh, the continent has been destroyed. And so Europeans need products and we're looking to sell products to them. Next slide. In comparison to the United States, Russia lost over 30 times the amount of soldiers in World War II. That is false. That is false. Remember, it was 50 times the amount of soldiers uh, that Russia lost. 50 times. And then uh, here we have another one, the Cold War, or cold in the Cold War refers to the increase in tension and distrust that affected U.S. and Soviet relations after World War II. Is that a true or false statement? That is true. Yeah, when you think about cold for Cold War, it's not that we're fighting in Alaska. It's not that there's like strategic, um, I don't know, like marine penguins that are fighting in Antarctica. I don't even know what that would look like. That'd be kind of weird, huh? Uh, What we're talking about here is like a cold relationship. You know, if you give somebody the cold shoulder, that usually means that you're acting chilly for them, right? Whereas before, maybe that image that you saw of the two soldiers were they were warm and embracing of one another. Here we have a relationship that is chilly. We're not talking to one another. We're not being honest and truthful. You know, I think you guys know this. Sometimes you might have old friends from middle school or elementary school that somebody says one thing and you know, they got all pissy with you. And next thing you know, you're, you're, you went from having a warm relationship and you, know, you pass in the hallway and you say, Hey, Hey, Joey. I don't know. Joey. Hey, Joey, how you doing? And then like, Joey's like, I'm not talking. No, uh-uh, no, you, you, not, you can, whatever. What, and you know, wow. Kind of acting cold. You know, he's not as warm as he used to be. And so we're talking about that type of cold relationship, not like winter weather. Next one. The Soviet Union took over Eastern Europe by invading countries like Poland and Czechoslovakia. Did the Soviet Union invade those countries? That would be false. Now, they didn't necessarily invade the countries. It was part of war, and they pushed the Nazis out. Remember, the Nazis had invaded those countries. The Soviets freed those countries. I mean, if you look at it, it might be invading, but it's during a war. They are pushing the Nazis out and then never left. The Soviets just never left. Occupied might be a better word. Another goal Russia wanted was to keep Germany united so as to stop them from starting another world war. That is true or false? That is false. The Soviet Union did not want to keep Germany united. They wanted to keep them divided because a united Germany would be a stronger nation that might unify and bring back Nazism 
So if Germany was divided, that would help uh, stop a future war starting in Central Europe and heading towards the East. Uh, let's see the next one. The Soviet Union and Stalin promised free elections in Eastern Europe and then broke that promise. That is true. That is a true statement. Yeah, the Soviet Union and Stalin had promised free elections in um, they had promised free elections in Eastern Europe, and then eventually Stalin said no, he could not go on that promise anymore. That he had to back off of it. Okay, so the next part of the notes that we're going to be or notes or uh, the lecture or PowerPoint that we're looking at here is the section of U.S. history known as the containment policy and trying to stop the spread of communism. So if you go beyond this, what I want you guys to do right now is to click on the video that's in Google Classroom. It says 1950s Cold War Propaganda, Communism versus Capitalism. I want you to watch that video. You have two questions you need to answer on the Cold War Propaganda videos and political cartoon <clears throat> Google Doc Sheet. They're the very first two. So take a moment to watch that video and answer those two questions, and then we'll come back. All right, hopefully I had an opportunity not only to see the video, but notice that Whittier had a shout out for it. All right, there's the Whittier Quad in Whittier, California. Um, one of the, the reasons why the video is being displayed in the, uh, I think it was like 1947, that the video was made. Uh, I think we put 1950s here, but I think it's the 1940, 48, 49, something like that, um, is because there's this growing concern from American capitalists that communism is attempting to spread around the world. And if it is spreading around the world, then maybe it's in our best interest to stop it from spreading. And so in the video, there is this fictitious takeover in Maltony, Wisconsin, where the Communist Party comes into power. And all these symbols of American freedom, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, they're all destroyed. I think in, in cartoon format, it shows like a fist coming down and destroying some of these major institutions that we here in the Western world value, like education and religion and democracy. And I think the Statue of Liberty gets exploded. Um, it is really a propaganda that is set to attack the emotional uh, emotional nature that Americans have when we, if we're patriotic or nationalistic, when we think about the ideals of being an American and our constitutional rights, that communism goes against that as well as capital um, goes against our capitalist nature. So hopefully you've answered those two questions. And then you have the next on the next slide, a image. This is a political cartoon. It says the new imperialism on the same sheet that you answer those two questions based off the video. What I want you guys to do is to analyze the political cartoon. I know the guy at the very top is very hard to see, but he's got a really big caterpillar mustache. And it's one guy that you saw a little bit earlier on in the PowerPoint. So if they're asking you for a name, go back a couple of pictures and see if you can see a guy with a big bushy mustache on. So take a moment to analyze the cartoon and then we'll re-meet. Hey, back again. I was, I was here the, the whole time. I didn't stop anything. So, um, Hopefully an opportunity to look at the political cartoon and realize who the individual is that's holding the sickle in his hand. Uh, that's the same sickle that's part of this huge robe, this kind of kingly robe that the man is wearing. That is Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, and uh, the hammer and the sickle is a symbol of the Soviet Union. And his cape is kind of extending over all these areas where communism has spread to Hungary, Romania, Tibet. Well, we haven't talked about Tibet yet. Bulgaria, East Germany, China. China becomes communist in the 1940s. 
uh, and then Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. This is kind of all the areas that are under the control of the new king, the new king being uh, Joseph Stalin, who's holding that sickle. So hopefully you answered all four of those, those questions. Now, the next image that you're going to see, it's kind of awkward. It's kind of like out of nowhere, and it's a picture of Kobe Bryant. All right, we're going to do a little sports analogy uh, about Kobe Bryant. We're just going to assume that Kobe right now is a communist. All right. Now, I know that some of you guys maybe have never seen Kobe play or saw Kobe play, but believe me, if you watch like any Laker shows, everything's Kobe these days. Um, but growing up as a Lakers fan and then as a Kobe fan specifically, um, you know, this is a this is a guy who basketball wise was great, you know, great score, greatest of all time. I mean, those are all debatable questions, and I'm probably, as a uh, Lakers fan, got a bias on my own, uh, right? But one of the things that was amazing about this guy is that when he played uh, the sport, he could get his points when he wanted to get his points. If he was on fire, that guy, there was no way of stopping him. But what I want to think of, I want you, what I want you guys to think of here for Kobe Bryant is that he is playing on this global scale. The court is the world, right? And communism is looking to spread. Kobe Bryant is looking to spread. And the way it spreads is by Kobe being devastating on the basketball court and scoring and scoring and scoring. And so our defense, we're the opposite team. We're playing against Kobe. We want to try to stop the spread of, of communism. We need to stop Kobe from scoring. Now, that's hard to do. You know, sometimes you might double team Kobe. Maybe you put him in a difficult situation. Maybe we need to double team the Soviet Union and maybe have allies on our side that could put pressure on the Soviet Union. Maybe we need to find a way of having Kobe give up the ball. Maybe um, maybe we're the ones in control. We're the offensive country, and that puts Kobe in a difficult position to have to play defense. Whatever the case might be, we win the Cold War game by trying to contain Kobe Bryant on the basketball court. And that's the same way that the game is going to play out eventually on a global scale. If you click the button, you're going to see a big orange box that's going to trap Kobe. Right? And that trap is called containment. Right? When you have some leftover food and you put it in a container, that's what we're talking about here. We're trying to contain the spread of communism, contain Kobe Bryant. Well, if Kobe's in a box, well, he can't score. I mean, that's basically it, right? If we can, uh, if we can contain Kobe Bryant, if we can contain communism, communism cannot spread. Kobe cannot score his points. Now, if we're looking at the, the next slide, you're going to see a, an image of Asia. Um, and if you kind of go through the little, you know, kind of space bar, if you space bar and space bar, you're going to notice the Soviet flag slowly being um, extended out. It started off in the Soviet Union, it then moves to China. After China, it moves to North Korea. After North Korea, there's an arrow that says that communism is going to be spreading down to Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And then eventually, maybe the Soviets might be looking to get involved in Turkey and spread communism in that direction. So from the, the mid to late 40s, it looks like the Soviet Union is attempting to spread communism or have other nations spread communist ideologies. In 1950, North Korea invades South Korea. In the 1950s, China, through China's backing, Vietnam, North Vietnam, will look to extend communism into South Vietnam. In the 1940s, it looks like the Soviet Union is trying to get Greece and Turkey, um, communist parties in Greece and Turkey, to overthrow the states. Because once the Nazis are kicked out of those countries, at least Greece, uh, it leaves a power vacuum in that part of the world. And the Nazis are going to be looking to, I'm um, sorry, the Soviets are going to be looking to take advantage of that 
and eventually start a communist revolution there. So from our perspective in the Western world, it's in our best interest to stop the spread of communism to those parts of the world. Because if we allow it to spread, let's say from North Korea to South Korea, it might jump right into Japan. Uh, if we allow it to go from China to Vietnam, it might end up in Indonesia or in Australia or in the Philippines or in India, or it might take over all of Asia. Or if we allow the Soviets to spread into Europe, then what we also end up having, having here are less allies on our side of this global campaign against communism and more allies for the Soviet Union. And we might be at a loss potentially. So our job here, if you see the big little no X's or uh, little cross out signs, is to try to stop the spread of communism. And we're going to do that through our policy, the official policy known as containment. And if you go to the next slide, you're going to see a political map of the world. And it says a communist world. This is our worst nightmare. If you click the bar a couple of times or five times, there's going to be a Soviet flag on every continent, all right? Except for Antarctica. Maybe the Soviet Union wants to be in Antarctica too. Right? It is a cold war, right? So they're in Europe. They're already in Asia. They might spread all the way to Australia. They could influence revolutions in Africa. They might start revolutions in South America. And if you notice, maybe North America is the only place uh, continent-wise, that might be focused on a democratic capitalist system. And we potentially are at a loss. Our way of life, our capitalist and uh, democratic republic way of life is under threat of global communism. So moving forward, uh, looking at the first uh, moments of containment, uh, one of the first moments comes from President Truman and um, a speech that he gave uh, to Congress. This is known as the Truman Doctrine. Um, in, in, the, in it, he says, or he's quoted saying that there are two ways of life. One way of life is based upon the will of the people and is distinguished by freedom from political oppression. Right? What he's trying to say is that there's our side, the Western side, Western democracy. That's one way of life. The second way of life on the world in 1940s is based on the will of a minority forcibly imposed upon the will of the majority. Right. The communists telling the majority of people what to do. It relies upon suppression of personal freedoms. So off of this speech that Truman gives to Congress, Congress allows um, $400 million to be given to two countries to help stop the spread of communism. Once again, it's called the, uh, the Truman Doctrine. It's the first attempt of containment against communism. First, And it's monetary, meaning it's by, by money. We're not sending troops yet. This is not Vietnam and Korea. Eventually, we're going to run out of money, and maybe money's not going to be enough. We have to send our soldiers to try to stop the spread of communism, and that is the Korean War and the Vietnam War. So the first attempt is the Truman Doctrine. Greece will take $200 million, Turkey will take $200 million, and with that money, they're to buy weapons, supplies, you name it. A lot of these weapons are old World War II weapons to fight against communist forces. But that last question is a really important question to consider. Does the United States have enough money to stop communism all over the world? Probably not. For as great as a nation that we are uh, at the time, you know, that we've survived the Second World War and we are the most powerful, most wealthy country in the world, we still don't have enough money to stop communism around the world. And that's why we have to try to get involved in other ways. Political pressure, sending troops, perhaps, um, getting more allies on our side than the Soviets have on their side. The second plan that goes into containment is known as the Marshall Plan. So late 1940s, the United States is looking to get a foothold in the Cold War, but also help out some of our allies that helped us out in the Second World War 
And so we come up with what is known as the Marshall Plan. And so the Marshall Plan, kind of a, a way of saying it, it takes uh, 12.5, excuse me, billion dollars, whereas the Truman Doctrine was million. Here we are, billion. 12.5 billion, and it divides up that money amongst 16 plus countries around the world. All right, nations that need this money to help them rebuild. If Europe is in shambles, if Europe, places like Italy and France and Germany are destroyed and they do not have an infrastructure, they do not have a good, um, what do you just say, um, uh, foothold, if they're not able to rebuild themselves, then that would allow for a communist takeover in no time. But if we can help these countries rebuild, if we can help these countries stabilize, then these countries will help us potentially in the future. This is almost like a bribe, right? We're kind of taking this money, we're giving it to our allies and saying, hey, we want you to rebuild, but remember who gave you the money, right? Remember where this money's coming from because one day, just like I scratched your back, you're gonna have to scratch my back. I did something for you, you gotta do something for me. So the money was meant to, to buy food and, and supplies, and that's exactly what it did do. But it also had, once again, this view of you got to do it for, for me. You know, we, we gave you the money. Remember who, who gave you the money and don't forget it. And the U.S. hopes that providing these mon- this money, that these countries in Europe and around the world will not become communist. They will not fall under the communist oppressive you know, web. Um, and if you look at the next slide, it shows an image. This was out of our textbook a couple of years ago. Uh, of the Marshall Plan and where the money went to. And I think if you look at the first four, first four, there's a couple that are surprising there. I think the first two are not. Great Britain gets $2.8 billion. And so does France. France gets 2.4, right? But they were on our side at the beginning of the war, right? Britain fought along us, D-Day invasions, even in Asia. France were uh, captured by the Nazis and eventually we helped liberate them. So we're going to give them some money to help uh, them rebuild their nation. But what's surprising here is who is in the third and fourth places, right? Italy, 1.3 billion and West Germany, $1.297 billion. That's, those are fascist Italians. Those are, those are Nazi Germans who just a couple of years ago were our enemies. And here we are in 1948, 1949, and we're giving them billions of dollars. We're trying to help them rebuild. But once again, the the world and who are enemies of one another have, have changed. We're no longer enemies of, of the Germans. The Germans are not totally seen as being Nazis anymore. They're just good German people. And we need to help them. We need to help them against the terror of red communism. Same thing with Italy. A moment ago, they were a bunch of um, Vespa-riding fascists, and now they're just regular Vespa-riding Italians. You know, ciao. And so it's, it's interesting how in a matter of years... We, we have demonized these people to be vicious and horrible. And then once the war is over, it's like, nah, they're just normal people. So we're trying our best to get our former enemies on our side. Plus, we're giving you know, money to Holland and Austria and some of these other uh, nations. Even Yugoslavia ended up getting through $33, billion, uh, sorry, $33 million for them. And they were a communist state. We offered money to Poland. We offered money to uh, Albania, because we we were hoping that with that money, if those nations said yes to us, that they would try to be on our side. But the Soviet Union declined on their behalf. They told Poland, nope, you're not going to get money. They told uh, Albania, Czechoslovakia, nope, you're not going to get money. Yugoslavia, however, said, no, we want the money. And the Soviet Union doesn't dictate what happens in our country. There were some tense moments there, but eventually Yugoslavia won out. 
All right, guys, if you can then locate, once again, the sheet that had the questions on the for the Cold War propaganda videos and political cartoon, you have three questions based off of this next political cartoon that you guys are looking at. It shows a communist bird flying a baby named Chaos to Western Europe and a doctor for the U.S. Congress trying to get there. Take a moment to analyze that cartoon, and uh, we will reconvene in just a moment. Still here, never went anywhere, once again. You know, it was kind of a whole whole ploy on my side, right? Just, I'm going to go silent, but I'm actually here. Anyways, hopefully you uh, answered those three questions. Here we have a, a communist bird, all right? Maybe this um, stork that's delivering a baby. That is one nasty baby. And the baby, of course, has a wrench because communism causes chaos, and it's going to throw a wrench into the rebuilding of Western Europe. But here's the doctor, U.S. Congress, and the Marshall Plan trying to get to Western Europe before communism does in an attempt to assist Western Europe, which is kind of awkward because it's like the, the doctor is trying to get there before the baby comes, but doesn't a doctor help deliver a baby? And is the baby chaos? And if the doctor is not delivering the baby, what's the doctor doing? Kind of a weird way of showing the U.S. trying to intervene with the Marshall Plan. All right, moving on. Berlin Airlift. All right, so the uh, the Berlin Airlift uh, took place, I believe here we are in uh, 1948, June of 1948. Um, the United States openly declares to England, France, and the Soviet Union that they are no longer interested in staying in Germany any further. Uh, it takes a lot of money to be an occupying force. And we have half of our, or a portion of our military occupying Japan. And we have a portion of our military that are in Western Germany. And it's time for us to leave. We want Germany to be on their own. We don't want to spend any more money in Germany. When we, you might look at it as a threat, but when we decide, the United States decides that we are going to leave uh, Germany, the Soviet Union freaks out. And the Soviet Union is going to use this against us, use this against us as a way to keep us in Germany. Because the Soviet Union, once again, is afraid that if nations leave and Germany is on their own, that Germany will reunify. And then once again, here we have a second or th I'm sorry, a third world war uh, that's coming our, our way. And so the Soviets, what they do in June of 1948 is that they will start to block off all parts of Western controlled Berlin, remember that the city of Berlin is in the Soviet sector of East Germany. And so all railroads, all roads are cut off, no water, no food, no supplies are allowed to get into the people of Western Berlin. Well, if no food and supplies and water is able to get in, eventually the people of Western Berlin are going to starve to death. And so the United States started, um, or at least Stalin, excuse me, believed that if he was to threaten the livelihood and the lives of Western Berlin, that the United States would back down and the United States would come back to Germany and stay in and stay entrenched in Germany. And Europe here is bracing uh, itself for another world war. There's a complete standoff. So we, we actually figure out a way around this. Because in, in this point in time, the Soviet Union does not have a nuclear weapon. They will in the near future. But they don't have it at this point. And so we are going to risk the potential of a world war because we want to get supplies into the people of Western Berlin. So if you guys click the slide, you're going to see the uh, a map that shows you East Germany. If you notice the outside of the map is East Germany. However, the part that's uh, outlined here in the middle, you have the French area, the British sector, the American sector, and the Soviet sector. And so once again, those four 
nations divided up not only the city of Berlin, but also the nation of Germany. So our section, our sector is there at the south, and it has an airport called, airport called Tempelhof. There's Gatau, and then there's Tegel Airport in the French and British sectors. And so for almost the entirety of one year, we are going to airlift supplies from Western Germany. So if you click on the next slide, from Western Germany into Berlin. And it's something like every I don't know, 7 to 12 minutes, an airplane is lifting off and flying over. Um, I think some of them are like uh, C-47 airplanes and C-51s, like Dakotas and um, our transportation airplanes that were used mostly in the Second World War, will deliver supplies from Western Germany into Berlin. They'll unload in Berlin. If you look at the next slide, these are American airplanes at Tempelhof Airport that are unloading supplies and eventually flying back to West Germany, picking up more supplies from West Germany, flying in, into Berlin. Now, if you're a Soviet soldier and you have your AK-47, you know, Kalashnikov rifle, and you pull the trigger and try to fire on one of these American airplanes, you have the potential of starting a war. And it's going to be a very different war for the Soviets because we do have the nuclear bomb and they don't. And so this becomes a, um, a moment for Russian history where the soldiers are told, don't you dare fire. Don't you fire one round. You're going to have to sit there and you're going to take it as French, British, and American airplanes simply keep coming in and delivering supplies. And for the entire year, the Soviets deal with it. The Soviets think that we're going to back down, but we don't. And eventually the Soviet Union, they back down and they will open up the opportunity for um, Americans, uh, American, British, and French vehicles to get supplies and water into the people of Berlin. If you go to the next slide, you're going to see an American airplane that's flying over three children. And once again, you know, those kids are kids that are their age just five years ago. You know, they were little, they were little Nazi children. They were the children of Adolf Hitler. You know, that airplane would be dropping bombs on them if this was the second world war. And then all of a sudden, you know, five years later, here we are. It's oh, there's a German children. Yeah. There, there's actually an American, an American airplane pilot. Um, I think it was, oh man, was it like the, the chocolatier or something like that? Or the chocolate guy. He would, he would go around and ask American troops for their uh, ration of chocolate, like their Hershey rations. And then he would take them and ask for, I think, the um, handkerchief. And the handkerchief, he would make a little um, parachute and he would tie a little bag of chocolate and he would fly over different schools in in um, Western Berlin and he would drop the chocolate and like little parachute containers down onto uh, the German children. You know, and I always thought that was kind of interesting and be a a German child and hear the Americans flying over you and you say, Allah, look, that, that is the yeah, Americans. Yeah, they are dropping chocolate. Yeah, oh. Maybe uh, Americans are like just rocket launching chocolate their way. Like, oh, they hit me with the chocolate. Huh? Hans, Hans, they killed Hans. Whatever the case might be. Um, moving on. Poor little Hans. Uh, let's see, moving on. Now, how did the Berlin airlift add tension to the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union? Well, here we are. At the moment where if there is a gunshot that's fired, you know, this is a tense moment. There is a, a potential for a future world war, World War Three potentially upon the horizon. Next slide. Uh, the Cold War divides the world. Okay, here we have uh, eight and nine. The Cold War divides the world. So by the time we're getting into the late 1940s and early 1950s, 
Um, we, much like in the Second World War, we're starting to have alliances that are building up because this is a potential for a future war. So we want to make sure that we have our nations on our side and the Soviet Union is going to do the same thing for them on their side. So we will create what is known as NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It still is in existence today. It's made up of the United States, Britain, and other Western uh, allied countries. And their goal, at least at the time, was to potentially be on the American side during this future Cold War to look out for one another. So if somebody was to attack England, the United States would be an ally and help support England against, you know, potential communist rule. Um, the Soviet Union eventually made their own, known as the Warsaw Pact, Warsaw being the capital of Poland. So it's the Soviet Union and the Eastern European nations, those same puppet nations that the Soviet Union eventually took over during the, um, during the Second World War. And then how does the creation of alliances create more tension between the Soviet Union and the United States? Well, I mean, you know which nations are on your enemy side. You know which nations on, are on your side. And, you know, there might be little skirmishes or little things that happen between some of these countries that could increase tension. Um, it's not one against one, like we saw with this, the First World War, right? It's three against, or four against five or six. And so that adds even more tension to a global, to a global scale, this uh, Cold War. Right, let's look at the weapons in the space race. You might see this slide eventually in the future when we do another set of notes. Um, I think the biggest thing to he here to look at is not only the creation of weapons, but also how much money and time we are build, uh, putting into this potential of a Cold War. So let's look at the United States side here. The atomic bomb. We have and successfully create and uh, deploy atomic bombs during the Second World War in 1945. The Soviet Union explodes, test explodes their first atomic bomb in 1949. What's the difference in time between 1945 and 1949? All right? How many years is the Soviet Union behind us when it comes to their technology? All right? They're four years behind us. All right? so we have a four-year gap where we potentially are successful. We have better um, bombs or more sophisticated bombs, and we might be going on to make the next great bomb. And the Soviet Union is four years behind us at that point. But notice the big jump that the Soviet Union makes here. We develop and explode in, once again, practice here. Um, in 1952, the hydrogen bomb, which is much more devastating than the atomic bomb. And notice the gap for the Soviet Union. They explode one one year later in 1953. So they've reduced that gap to one year. And then in 1957, the Soviet Union creates what are known as ICBMs, or Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, and we develop nothing. Now, what an ICBM allows a nation to do is to deploy a missile with a nuclear warhead on top of it within, inter, within a continent. So if the Soviet Union wanted to hit anything in Europe, they would have to deploy that missile from Europe. If the Soviet Union wanted to hit Africa, that means, that means that they would have to deploy a missile from Africa. It would have to be within the continent. So that missile cannot be launched from Moscow and hit New York. It's too far away. It, it has to be closer to North America. And what makes this even more dramatic is in 1963 with the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviets are placing missiles in Cuba, which is off the coast of Florida. And from Cuba, uh, I think they can hit anything or everything from the United States from continental U.S. outside of like Washington State or Seattle or something like that. So if you're living in Seattle, hey, you made it. But otherwise, you might be a target from Los Angeles on the West Coast to Maine up in the Northeast and everybody in the middle of the United States, you're under a target. And we have nothing. 
we have no way of deploying missiles in return. So let's say 1957, there is an attack. The Soviets are able to launch missiles that are close to us, or they're able to get those missiles close to us. They launch. We would have to scramble our um, our fighter planes or our bombers. We would have to get them on the launch pad uh, launch uh, pads. We'd have to put nuclear weapons on them. We would have to send them for perhaps a 12, maybe 11 to 12 hour flight to deploy those uh, bombs over Moscow, over Russia and drop them. And perhaps within maybe two or three hours, the Soviet Union has launched weapons and have killed off the United States. Our, our lag time now is simply by maybe 10 hours, but in those 10 hours, that could cost us our entire nation. We have no way of an instant retaliation. It would take too much time. To furthermore, the Soviets also put the first satellite in outer space, known as Sputnik. It was about the size of a grapefruit and had like three little uh, wires coming out of it. Um, that was the first satellite that eventually will get us into the technology of setting satellite signals around the world and one of the reasons why we're able to see, you know, sporting events in one place or the Olympics in another is because of satellites. So they do that in 1957. This is what Sputnik sounded like. Get all ready for this, kids. Here we go. Beep. 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 That's all it sounded like. On the other side, we put our satellite, uh, first satellite in 1958. Now we're behind the times. The big change here in the United States happens around this time. What would be my parents' generation, perhaps your grandparents' generation? Um, we started to focus on mathematics and science much more in the high school uh, time period. So let's say <clears throat> you are in a calculus class right now. You are in a advanced um, chemistry class, or even chemistry by itself. Those classes didn't exist in high school back in the 1950s. But because the United States was so interested in potentially winning this war, they started to incorporate higher level math and higher level sciences at the high school level to romanticize, to draw interest amongst your grandparents so that they can find an interest in science and in math. And they would be the ones that would go on to build some of the great weapons or technology that would eventually win the Cold War. That's really the only reason why you have calc. That's really one of the major reasons why you have chemistry. It's not that one person said, hey, I think high school kids would, would love chemistry at high school. No, you usually got that in college. You didn't get it at high school. But because the Cold War was a major part that the nation wanted to win, a major event that the nation wanted to win, they started telling uh, individuals or um, education that it, it's most important, it's critical that we kid get our kids on um in line that, that we make sure that they understand that it is critical for them to go and become uh, and win the war and become knowledgeable in these fields. The next image you're going to see is the um, image of the atomic bomb explosion in the second world war and some of the devastation there. Uh, the next image is the largest weapon that the United States has ever um, practiced or um, um, tested. And that is Castle Bravo. I think that was something like uh, 15 megatons, I think is what it, it was equal to, and a hydrogen bomb. Uh, it, it did not hit the area that they hoped that it hit, and it is going to be a precursor to stopping and altering some of the major explosions for testing for the United States, or at least um, above water testing. The next image you're going to see is known as the Zard Bomba. This is a copy of the original that was um, uh, practiced or tested. Um, 
it is it was exploded at 50 megatons. However, when the explosion before the explosion was supposed to be tested, they were supposed to test it at 100 megatons. Um, now, if you continue going through the slides, you're going to see the location on one of the islands above Russia where it was exploded, and then another image showing you the actual mushroom cloud. Um, the thing was huge, even exploded at 50 megatons. It, they realized, the Soviets realized real quick that it was too cumbersome and would cause way too much devastation and put, you know, not only their enemies at risk, but potentially their own people at risk. Um, it blew out um, windows and houses as far away as like Norway. Um, and you can see it even in the radius here on the next slide. You have Castle Bravo, which was 15 megatons, and Lazard Bomb at 50 megatons. We, a couple of years ago, as a, um, a lesson in my World Civ class, we took the bomb and we overlaid the center point of the bomb of, of Lazar Bomba um, over Los Angeles to see what the radius would be as far as 4.6 kilometers of devastation. Because not only you have the area that's going to be completely destroyed, you have an energy, a wave of energy, a shock wave that is going to destroy parts as well. And if you dropped it right in the center of Los Angeles, you're going to have complete devastation as far away as Santa Ana in Orange County, as far up north as like areas of Santa Barbara, um, um, or just outside of Santa Barbara, depending, of course, on where the uh, the hills uh, are, like Oxnard area. The shock wave could potentially uh, go as far as San Diego and as far north as like Monterey. And then where the winds blow afterwards, you might have radiation fallout. If the winds are blowing onshore, it might end up in places like Nevada and Las Vegas. Uh, if it's uh, coming uh, offshore, then potentially, you know, it, it might go out into the waters and you might have uh, uh, pollution in waterways that kill off the fish. And so um, the, the Russians realized that they, they didn't necessarily need a bomb that was that large and sort of the United States, that if you build up enough of an arsenal, you did not necessarily need this, you know, huge bomb that was supposed to be the end all. Um, because if you deployed it, it would be the end all on major levels on the end all of your nation as well as the end all potentially of your enemy's nation. Okay, um, let's see, let's move on here. Um, all right, then we're gonna, we're gonna have you watch um, one last video here. Uh, this is called the duck and cover video. So it's part of the Google Classroom. Please make sure you locate that, click on it. You have six answers or six questions to answer on that same sheet that you've been using so far, the Cold War propaganda videos and cartoon, uh, AP 2020 Google Doc sheet. So take a moment to watch that. It's really funny, but it also gives you the idea of how scary life was between the United States and the Soviet Union in 1951 if the U.S. feels that they have to make videos like this and show it to little kids. So take a moment to watch it. Still here. Hopefully you guys just uh, finished watching the uh, the video and you've answered those six questions pretty Pretty darn scary. Funny, yes, that they're using a turtle, right, with some sort of protective shell to kind of give this idea that if, as long as you duck and cover, everything is going to be fine. But it's also, in the best way, asinine to make little children believe, and maybe even adults believe, <coughs> excuse me, that if you simply duck and cover and you protect your head with a, a cloth or something or some sort of newspaper, I mean, towards the end, there's that family that like dives down underneath there picnic table cloth that that's supposed to save you from a nuclear explosion. No, depending on how close you are, you're pretty much going to evaporate. You are not going to be around any, any much or any further. And um, even if you're in buildings, uh, they did structural tests in the 1950s that showed that, you know, only 
the most, you know, hardened concrete could actually survive. And of course, it depends on how close to the explosion you are and how far away you are. Even if you were far away, you might you might survive the initial blast, but you might die from radiation poisoning or cancer potentially. And so the, the main idea here is that you want to make the American public feel that everything and anything can be done on their end, as well as the U.S. government's end, to simply protect from a future atomic bomb, right? And that there are the ones with warning, without warning. And if you are luckily in one that has with warning, it gives you time to survive. But if you're without warning, and it's very critical that you understand what to do. Right, you know, little Joey is going to his baseball practice or something, and he just dives down and gets behind a two-inch brick wall, and they're like, "Hey, or is it Tony? At a boy, Tony, like he survived? No, he'd be completely obliterated." Or the kids at school, you know, they go under their their desk, they go under a table or something, you know, or if you're supposed to drop away from like a glass. Uh, um, a glass door or something, you know, so the shards of glass, um, you know what, they're going to impale in you. They're going to be burned straight into you. You know, it's, it, it's crazy to think, but you know, we, I'm not saying we do this to the same extent when we do our earthquake drills, but this became a, a common drill that was done um, all the way through to, I think like the 1960s, maybe even 1970s. And there's some, it tailors off uh, a little bit, but people did it. They did the uh, fire evacuation. They did an earthquake drill. And they did a duck and cover nuclear holocaust drill, even at Whittier High School. Uh, underneath the library is the location that you're supposed to go to if there is a nuclear attack. If you guys have ever been there, it's kind of creepy, but uh, it's not going to do anything. It pretty much would asphyxiate you. They, they had doctors at the time that were warning you that if there was any fire, even if you went into a low area, if there was a fire above you, eventually people did not survive because of, of asphyxi asphyxiation. You eventually choked to death if you were in those areas. Okay. Um, last, uh, last little event to talk about, and then you have uh, a summary that you need to submit, and then we're done with this first lesson. Uh, so the next topic is the U-2 spy plane incident. In 1960, <coughs> excuse me, President Eisenhower was president. Same General Eisenhower during the Second World War will become president. Um, there is a period of time in the Eisenhower administration where the, the premier of the Soviet Union, his name is Nikita Khrushchev. Stalin dies in 1953, I believe. So from 53 to the 1960s, maybe about 11 or 12 year period, Nikita Khrushchev is the premier. And the relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States got a little bit better under Nikita Khrushchev. Um, there seemed to be, he seemed to be a guy who was a little bit more willing to talk and not as scary as Stalin. Um, whatever the case might be, President Eisenhower had asked Nikita if it was possible if American airplanes could fly over Russia, and in doing so, he would allow uh, Russian planes to fly over the United States. And Nikita Khrushchev quickly responded with a no, because if they allowed, if the Russians allowed the Americans to fly over Russia, it would be because they wanted to spy. They wanted to spy on Russia and they wanted to find the locations of where the Russian missiles, you know, these ICBMs were located. And that would give the Americans potential to get a, um, a leg up on the competition, right? And same thing with the, the United States. If they did allow the Soviet Union to fly over their land, that the Soviet Union might spy on, uh, on the, the United States and locate where our weapons were. Um, Needless to, to say, uh, the Soviet Union said no, but the United States decided to spy anyways. So 1960, we sent a high-altitude U-2 spy plane 
that flew over Russia. This U-2 spy plane was equipped, I think, with two or three high-definition photo uh, photo lenses. And um, we're talking about, you know, the size of probably like a dresser drawer um, that you might have in one of your rooms. And they're t- we're talking about for as magnifying as it is, it had to be huge at the time. Um, but it, it didn't carry any weapons. It was just simply to fly at high altitude above radar so the Soviets couldn't see it or couldn't detect it and eventually snap pictures of the Russian land. And so the United States would then figure out where the Russians were hiding their ICBM. So if there was a future war, we would target specifically those areas, almost like we're shooting down their weapons before they have an opportunity to fire them. Um, the spy plane and his and the pilot, Gary uh, Powers, um, were shot down. Uh, the pilot, uh, Powers, was captured. He was um, tortured, and he gave up quite a bit of information. Uh, and this puts egg on the face of the United States. And I believe it was at a UN conference where the Soviets publicly in front of other nations asked one of the uh, American members uh, if the United States, uh, blatantly, if the United States was spying on the Soviet Union. And the response was no. And I think it might have even been with Eisenhower. And the response was no. And here comes the Soviet Union with these detailed photographs of the U-2 spy plane and Gary Powers that had been captured. Um, And the United States was found out to have lied. And and we're talking about publicly on an international scene. One of the things, however, that Khrushchev did do that saved face with the United States was that Khrushchev did not blame Eisenhower directly. He blamed the FBI and the CIA. Um, A little bit earlier, Khrushchev had been invited here to the United States, and he had an opportunity to meet with the President Eisenhower. Uh, He ate dinner with Eisenhower's family, and it looked like there was an opportunity for both nations. Now, they weren't going to agree on everything because the Russians have their way of life and the Americans have our way of life, and that's just the way it's going to be. So it's not like there's going to be a moment where Russians and Americans are going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and peace is going to be declared. So, I mean, Russia has to look out for their own interests, much like the United States or any nation looks out for their own self-interest, their best interest. But it looked like there was at least an understanding that we are human beings and we can sit down at a table and we can enjoy each other's company. And Khrushchev really liked that. He loved his visit here. There were some up and downs. He got to Los Angeles and apparently... uh, And so once um, they actually... They said something about him that... um, try to bring something up that he would not succeed. The Soviets would not succeed. And he had been, you know, he had been invited for a luncheon and here is the mayor of Los Angeles. That's totally throwing nothing but negative um, quotes his way and negative feelings. And then he Khrushchev had enough of it Uh, earlier. He and his family were supposed to go to Disneyland. His son had really wanted to go to Disneyland and the U S government said they could not offer protection there. And he got up on the podium and he let everyone have it including the mayor of Los Angeles. And if you ever watch video footage of it, the mayor of Los Angeles looks like he's going to crap his pants. It looks like he was trying to be forceful, but potentially could have ruined a relationship further and could could have led to the Soviets declaring war on the United States. I mean, if you ever see it, it it is quite spectacular. If you guys go on YouTube and type that in, type in like a, Khrushchev speech to the uh, film out or the uh, Screen Actors Guild or something like that to Hollywood. Yeah, it's really interesting to see the face of uh, the then mayor of Los Angeles. So Khrushchev does not blame um, Eisenhower because of the kindness that Eisenhower had, but he does blame the CIA and 
Much like Stalin was caught in a lie um, at the beginning when he had promised free elections in Eastern Europe, here the United States is being caught in a lie after we promised not to spy on the Soviet Union. This is an image of the U-2 spy plane. If you click on the slide, you're going to see the image. And then there is Gary Powers. Um, he is going to be dishonorably discharged from the U.S. Uh, I think it was either Navy or Air Force. Um, and he eventually is going to be in a helicopter crash here in Los Angeles, I believe in the 1960s. Um, and it was after his death that his family was approached. I'm not sure when. And he was honorably reinstated and medals given, a flag awarded uh, to him. Uh, the reason why he was dishonorably discharged is that the U.S. government held it against him that when he was tortured that he gave up secrets or whatever it is that he knew about the uh, spy plane. Or, and so you're not supposed to do that, apparently, for the U.S. government. So, so we're going to end there as far as up to 1960 and some of the major events that helped bring tension to the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so the last slide here is one of your, this is your summary question. You have a Google Doc that I want you to respond to, to this prompt, all right? So you guys remember that you're submitting three things based off of this lesson. So the first thing that you're going to be submitting is the differing U.S. and Soviet goals chart. That was the chart that the United States, all the goals the U.S. had and the Soviets had. You are going to submit the answers to the propaganda video and political cartoon questions. And then you're going to submit this last part. It's going to be, I think, something like 50 points each. So it's 150 points that are up for grabs over here. And let's look at that summary question. It says, what were the major causes of the Cold War? And then describe with detail two events that helped increase tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. So if you... If you make this into two paragraphs, your first paragraph would help you answer the first question, what were the major causes of the Cold War? And then your second paragraph would be, once again, with detail, describing two events that helped increase tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. I presented, I think, about five or six of them. You just need to pick two and be able to relate them. If you want to go back in the textbook, I'm sure the textbook can give you uh, even more information from what we've, you know, more than what we've covered here today. Um, there is going to be a quiz at some point. I don't have it completed right now, but I would say by late Friday, uh, a quiz will be up. Um, and it'll, you can use everything that you have here. You could have your charts, your readings, your political, um, cartoon answers, the PowerPoint slide, as far as information to help you with the quiz. All right. So the fifth, 150 points is going towards your regular list, like your packet work. And then the quiz itself will be added to your test. Uh, grade, which is like 50% of your grade. So I would say that you need to score really well. For some of those, or for those of you that have been asking me, how do I get my grade up? Score well on these quizzes. You have all of your information readily available for you to use during the quiz. So if it's like I have 20 points or sorry, 20 questions and it's out of 40 points, two points each, I expect if you have all the answers for you to get 40 out of 40 or 20, all 20 of those questions, right? If you have any questions with any of this at any point, please Give me a, uh, send me a remind, send an email, um, and I'll try to get back to you as soon as possible. Okay. Take care, guys, and I'll talk to you soon.